Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining me for a new episode of Last Call Baseball, number 145. I'm Dorian, and did you know that just last week it was the New York Fashion Week? All the big American clothing companies decided to do their, what is it, summer, spring-summer collection. And then the New York Fashion Week starts up again, I think, in, in September, actually. And look, who doesn't want to look good? When you go out with friends, when you go on a date, when you're going to work, and baseball players are no different because they go to work, they just happen to work in front of, what, 30, 40,000 people every day, and then hot, who knows how many millions of people on television. Have you heard about this fashion slash uniform slash who knows what scandal in Major League Baseball? It's spring training now, and so all the teams are coming out with new stuff for you to buy, your new hat, new nonsense, things that say like Cactus League 2024 or the or the Grapefruit League in 2024. Apparently, Nike, in partnership with the, those uh, this other company, Fanatics, they're making new jerseys, new uniform, new everything for the players, and they look cheap. And if you go on baseball Twitter, if you just go and just put in in the internet machine baseball jerseys, there are so many articles how people are outraged that these uniforms look cheap, ugly, and they are so expensive, so expensive. They're like $174, and they look like absolute poo-poo. And of course, we can always count on that man that lives in New York City, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, to defend Every bad decision that they do to the death, you know, hats off to him because he just stands his ground. He's like, I don't care. I know this is a bad decision, but I am not going to back down. I'm going to do what's good for me, not what's good for everybody else. So hats off to you, Mr. Manford. If a chief designer of one of these large American fashion fashion brands would show something like this on the runways of New York City, this person would probably get fired. But in Major League Baseball, you get a pat on the back. So I looked at what exactly is wrong with these jerseys. Again, they're just cheaply made. They, they even look cheap. I haven't seen them in person, but I've seen them on a bunch of pictures and a bunch of different websites. Apparently, the team logos aren't stitched on because they, I think Majestic used to have the, the contract, and they would do it by hand. They would have highly skilled people to stitch the team logos on every single jersey. Now with Fanatics, because Nike basically subcontracted it out to Fanatics, They just iron it on. It's almost like going back to the future where when you were in college and people were doing like the the foam dance or some kind of fundraising, you would just go to your local screen uh, screen printer and say, hey, look, can you put this logo on these random five dollar shirts, iron them on, and then you go sell them for like 20, 20 to 25 dollars for your for your fundraiser when you're in college. It's a terrible look. And also the players' names on the back of the jerseys are, the font is like, you. if you put them side to side, you can see they're drastically smaller. And Rob Manford said, well, this is to be more comfortable, et cetera. This, is, this was extensively tested. This is supposed to be more comfortable and whatever. And there's one, he actually, there was a Baltimore Orioles player who, who, uh, who spoke off the record. So he didn't want to be identified. He said, quote, I think that the performance wear might feel nice. But the look of it is like a knockoff jersey from TJ Maxx, end quote. <laughs> and what I love is the internet, as, as, uh, as fearless as Rob Manfred is, 
The internet is even more fearless and the internet does not sleep. So the internet has come with a tidal wave of saying, we should just buy knockoff jerseys made in a certain communist Asian country. And I love foreign policy and all that stuff. Who knows? Maybe American capitalist baseball fans can help save communist China's economy with their with a pent-up demand for cheaper and better Major League Baseball jerseys. And the communist Chinese factories can actually start reopening and making money again. Because if you're not following places like uh, Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, the communist Chinese economy is suffering. Maybe, just maybe, Major League Baseball fans are going to come in and save the day for them. And maybe then the Chinese will stop. Then maybe their government will stop, uh, knock off all their uh, Taiwanese anger. And after comparing New York Fashion Week, by the way, people, I am not some fashionista. I just think it's very funny that all this came out the exact same week parallel. New York Fashion Week and these terrible jerseys from Major League Baseball. I'm not buying any of this new stuff. I actually don't buy any jerseys. Every year I do buy hats, and I love, especially when I go to a minor league team, a minor league game, I'll buy the minor league hat from whoever I'm seeing. And I went on Fanatics, the website, to look at the new Atlanta Braves spring training hat. I didn't like it. It's just like this deep maroon, Not is it maroon? No, it's like a deep red, and I didn't like it. I'm like, all right, this year I'm not buying the Atlanta Braves spring training hat. So let me ask you, what are you going to do with your money? Are you really going to go to the to your favorite team's baseball stadium and plunk down $174 on a poorly designed and poor quality garment and a poor quality jersey. Who knows about the shirts? Who knows about anything else? Maybe even the hats start. I don't know. I haven't seen the hats, but what if the hats, the stitches come off after you wear them for six months? Who? I'm not saying they do, but this is just a bad look. I'm going to save my money. I'll go to games, minor league games, college baseball games, and some Major League Baseball games. I'm not buying any baseball paraphernalia this year. I'm voting with my pocket in this year of a presidential election. <laughs> I'm voting against Rob Manfred. So when you go to the game, look good. Wear your favorite team, wear your best hat, wear your best shirt, whatever you want. Go, enjoy it. You don't need to buy the stuff that the guys are wearing on the field because they don't even want to wear it. And all this talk about colleges, New York Fashion Week. Do you know another fashionable city that also has a really good college? Los Angeles. This week, I'm joined by special guest, Professor Joan Waugh, professor of history at UCLA. Professor Waugh, welcome to Last Call Baseball. I'm delighted to join you. Professor Waugh, do you think it was right for Alva Vanderbilt not to invite Caroline Astor for her ball back in 1883? <sighs> I think that it was very snotty of her not to do that, and I disapprove. That is, that is a great show for the most part. It's highly colored by the uh, Julian Fellows, and he is. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of Downton Abbey comes to New York City, but I love it. It's good. It's fun. And for those of you who don't know, this is a this was the scandal. Uh, you should probably explain this better than than I can, Professor. Of uh, the scandal of uh, the 1883 social season when the the Vanderbilts, the the Gloria, the Gloria Vanderbilt's descendants, the Astros were still around, and That's they had a little social uh, competition. There you go. It was the nouveau riche, nouveau rich, the new rich versus the old timey ups. Uh, upper-class New York. 
the Astors versus the Vanderbilt. So it's it's a it's a really good show, and it does show, albeit a beautiful New York, that the streets were not as clean as they're depicted in the show, which is right. But it it does it covers a lot. It covers African Americans in New York and the poor people upstairs, downstairs kind of thing. And of course, the dresses are drop dead beautiful. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the the uh, the guilt. It's on. I think it's on HBO. But this is again. This is a real. This actually really happened. Where Alva Vanderbilt spent the equivalent of like seven million dollars on her six year old daughter's birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> seven million. The equivalent of seven million dollars today, which is outrageous. Yeah. Professor Wall, you've written numerous books and and articles, and you've edited books, uh, and they all are specifically uh, on the Gilded Age, and also um, and also President Grant, which we'll get into. When did this fire for that era in the United States blaze inside of you? <laughs> what a great question! I have an answer for that. It it was as a nerd-like child when I read everything in my local library. And I was born and raised in LA, by the way, and our library allowed us to check out 12 books every time we visited. So I would read 12 books in a week. And I discovered very quickly that among my favorite reading materials were biographies of presidents like Abraham Lincoln, like Clara Barton. I also cover, I cover the entire 19th century, but especially the Civil War, which I've taught for many uh, uh, years at UCLA and the Gilded Age, the last three decades of the 19th century. And so that's when I discovered a a real love for the past and appreciation that only deepened as I grew older and I decided to make my major at UCLA uh, that of history and so at UCLA I got my BA, my Bachelor of Arts degree there, my MA, Master's and my PhD and I was a professor, I am a professor at UCLA for many years and those are the two, those are my special areas of interests. I've written books about them and about that era and textbooks and articles that, as you mentioned, and I'm kind of immersed in it. And my goal is to make people look at the past, students look at the past, not in a judgmental way, which we tend to do in this day and age, especially not in order to condemn the past, but to try and understand it. In other words, what what was life like for these people even if they you know even maybe we can appreciate the challenges that they had different challenges that we have today and and kind of understand where they're coming from we don't have to approve of everything that went on in the past but just try and understand it and actually educate ourselves to it i'll just i'll just briefly take this back to baseball I, one of the things that I cover in my classes is culture, culture and entertainment, and and b- baseball was a huge part of that in the 19th century. There was a sports mania, I call it, that took hold of the American people, especially in the late 19th century, the Gilded Age. 
Right. The two of the more famous franchises to going off of, we had said when baseball exploded after the Civil War, uh, so, so to speak, in the nor Northeast, the Cincinnati Reds and then the uh, Boston Braves, now the Atlanta Braves, who are the oldest continuously operating team, because I think the Cincinnati Reds were the first baseball club, but they went defunct and they came back. But the Boston Braves then became the Milwaukee Braves, Atlanta Braves. And it's yeah, it's 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 incredible that. These clubs were around when President Ulysses S. Grant was in the White House. That that's when organized baseball basically started. Yes, I wish I wish I could tell you that he was a baseball fan, but I don't think he was. <laughs> I don't recall. Um, I'm sure that he knew about baseball and maybe even attended a game. I just can't recall that. But I I will say this that the the whole transition from amateur to professional happened in the late, I would say it started in 18, the late 1860s, 1869, throughout the 70s when Grant was president until 1876, and then really charged up in the 1880s and 1890s. And the original names, the Chicago White Stockings, the uh, Boston Red Stockings, I mean, they just had the most evocative names and they had the uniforms to match. It's a real, really fascinating story of the evolution of the game, its rules, its players, its management, and uh, until the, throughout the 20th century as well. To be fair to President Grant, he had a couple of things on his plate, you know, namely reconstruction and things like yeah. that. So he he's did. a busy man. He did. He did. And and but the the tradition of having a president come to the game, for example, in, in D.C., uh, coming to the game and throwing out the first pitch had not remotely developed as yet. So that's he wouldn't have had that. But it was a popular game amongst Civil War soldiers. So he probably knew that. One of the things that I miss, even though I w obviously I wasn't around of the Gilded Age, but the ridiculously wealthy men and let's be honest it was they're all men but there i think there was a sense of giving back in giving back in the like uh carnegie mellon with his libraries and rock and well rockefeller's a little bit later with his you know in that you know, the buildings united nations university of chicago etc it's that sense of let's give back to the civil society versus now the ultra the ultra wealthy these new nouveau riche if we use the parlance of the times are more are more interested in building space companies or funding longevity companies so that they can live forever or buying baseball teams or sports teams. That's what I miss about the Gilded Age. Well, that's that's an I, you know I would have to think about that. I mean I think a lot of of billionaires these days do contribute their funds and support to what we would consider good causes. But, uh, but I think that, that it, was, it was complicated in that sports actually became a part of what we can call the, um, the corporate mindset that was developing in the Gilded Age, big business. Uh, one of the, the main themes of the Gilded Age is the rise of big business, the rise of the big oil company, Rockefeller Oil Company, the rise of the big 
coal companies and steel companies, Andrew Carnegie, so forth and so on. And baseball, although a much smaller concern at that time, took a lot of their practices as they modernized from the, um, the titans of the Gilded Age. Uh, yeah, it would have been funny to see standard oil on the back of some baseball jersey if they had been you know wanting to do that i guess in like the 20s or 30s or maybe even the new york oilers i don't know <laughs> the pittsburgh oilers or, or whatever yeah, i noticed they, yeah they had great names for teams back then <laughs> you have helped put on workshop workshops for history teachers i i love history and in a different life i would be hopefully something like you in, in having being a very prestigious history teacher or professor, excuse me. What really bothers me is I, I think you probably came across the same thing is when you're sitting in these courses, whether you're in high school, college, et cetera. And like history is kind of like one of those things is like, Oh man, I have to go take a history class. I have to take a math class. And who cares about these old dead people who did stuff? I always just would tear my hair out of why don't these teachers make it more interesting for people. Because for an example, there would be, let's say you're talking about the Middle Ages in Europe. They never talked about the personalities of these of these people. And you would think of some of these kings who would, ha who would be rulers of these kingdoms and have unfathomable wealth in context of the time. These were teenagers. Some of these, some of these young boys that would become kings were literally teenagers. And that in itself would be super interesting, I think. Of, of helping drive some of the crazy decisions that they would make and just, just go off to war and like, oh, you know what? It's almost like, you know, kids in the street getting having uh, issues and want to fight. Like, oh, you, you want to fight me? Well, then imagine if you had 2,000 men behind you and you create all this chaos. Why is it that I'm not saying you don't in your workshops, but unless it's inherently an interest in, inside of you, I feel like history is kind of like, all right, let's just get this over with Te the, the way we teach it in this country. Well, the, of course, we know um, all of us, you and I, have had experiences with good teachers and bad teachers. But there's also some, there are other factors at work. I mean, the teacher workshops that you mentioned, they're wonderful. I enjoyed every single one that I participated in. And of course, there's self-selected group of teachers. They're probably the best their school had to offer anyway. And I, I always found it uh, a wonderful, as I said, uh, really enlivening and it's sort of refreshing to me uh, to make myself a better teacher. But I, I think there's also something about the students. The student has to come from a place where he or she wants to learn. That you, you learn, you have to be, uh, growing up, involves some maturing experiences, doesn't it? In other words, not every teacher is gonna be dynamite. So if it's boring, well, then, then maybe you look to yourself to make sure you learn even if it's boring and, and, and wait till the next class or, or the next teacher. What can I say? I think there's a lot. One issue that seems to me prevalent uh, uh, as I meet uh, new UCLA students uh, is that they they have very little background in history. Some of them d uh, say to me, I never took American history. I was never taught th about the Civil War, about the 19th century. 
and it seems that there's there's a lot missing from elementary middle school and high school education in terms of of just sort of nuts and bolts US history I don't I don't know I can't speak to European history or international history but it there's something really wrong there especially when these young men and women who enter UCLA don't know about the Astor Vanderbilt feud of 1883 shocking <laughs> well I have a whole test on that uh, historian uh, but but I think I think that that I mean you just saying that it seems that a lot of history could be learned I suppose by watching history shows and I, I don't know but it just it, there seems to be a real level of ignorance regarding history and it always used to depress me when year after year after year I don't know on a holiday like the 4th of July or um, President's Day, some, some local reporter would go out to Venice Beach, for example, and ask, who's the first president of the United States? Uh, Napoleon? You know, I mean, the answers would be so ludicrous, you think, well, this, this is a setup. Or J Jay Leno used to do that a lot. And it was very, very funny and also very sad. <laughs> Yeah, I think that bit for Jay Leno, it was, I, used to, I think it used to be called jaywalking. Yeah, Jay, that's right, jaywalking. Now he does these great car shows, so I enjoy those. Yeah, I, I can talk about history all day. I love it. But you, Professor Waugh, L.A. born and bred, you are L.A. Dodgers. You love the L.A. Dodgers. Where does that connection to the Dodgers? Well, it, it, it came from me. It came for me because of my family. My family was a very uh, sports-oriented family, and I played, and we played baseball in our neighborhood. So boys and girls together, we played baseball. I'm left-handed. Sandy Koufax was left-handed. Clayton Kershaw is left-handed. I love it. You know, I lo I love all the. Very early in my life, I was introduced to baseball. Even though my father and my uncle played football at Notre Dame, baseball was just, it was a game in the neighborhood. It was the game that I was best at. And, and I played it in grade school and, and junior high. And, and I also, our team was the Dodgers. And so we just, we, my family would go to Dodger games, not all of the Dodger games, of course, but, and then, and then we had this guy called Vin Scully calling the games, and Vinny, who died in 2022, I mean, the best announcer ever in the whole world, uh, we had him on the radio when we played in our street, played baseball games, so he would call the game. So it's it kind of, the Dodgers, I grew up to the Dodgers, listened, you know, and, and of course it teaches you how to be uh, a fan that you, you're so excited for your team and then they don't make it into the World Series. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's really, baseball is about life as far as I'm concerned. Ups and downs. And very long. And very long, hopefully. <laughs> they, they say baseball's too long now. No, it's, it's gotten better. 
with yeah. the the pitch clock and uh, the shaving off like 20 30 minutes from the game yes i mean this this past season that was the first time they did that and i think it i think it was great uh, i do think there's some further reforms that are needed but we'll leave that for the end we'll, we'll definitely yeah, get to that but i also grew up reading i mean i always love to read biographies i i learn history through biography and i am a biographer <clears throat> and i find that when i when I lecture to my students, I embed my lectures with biographies because they can, they have a hard time sometimes understanding concepts, but if you give them the, a person behind the, what you're trying to teach them, the political uh, and the cultural element, if you put a face to it, you know, that, that helps and it helped for me. So I just, uh, I really, I really uh, think that uh, baseball is a part of my life. Finn Scully is, is the person who narrated the whole thing. And the Dodgers had, have had great teams. They've always been fun. And, and I, I didn't care that they moved from Brooklyn. That wasn't a trauma for me. Well, that that's, was, that's a, that was a bonus for you. It, by the 60s, I, I mean, I, I didn't even... I, when I started reading books on baseball, The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn and Doris Kearns Goodwin, Wait Until Next Year, th those are two people who hated the fact that the Dodgers moved to L.A. Yeah, because for people like that, it's like, God forbid New York City is not the center of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, they're, they're still, they, they still think of themselves as such. I love New York City, but it does it it does uh, grind my gears. Uh, yeah, to that it, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, but, but but big cities are exhausting. That's the nice thing about living in L.A. You can say you're from Los Angeles and this is vast area, but you could be living in a in a very quiet neighborhood. I mean, in L.A., you could be born and. You can still be stuck on the the four hundred five. Uh, Thirty years later, you're like, I still haven't got home. I'm still in diapers. Well, the traffic is awesome in LA. Yes, it is awesome. However, those of us in the know uh, have access to other routes, and we know the times to go and the times not to go. You know, this reminds me of a an episode. I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. Of course. That episode when Larry gives away his route and or I forget who it was, but I know Larry likes he spilled his he spilled his he spilled the beans. And then that route is like completely jammed up. So we're not going to do that to you, Professor. Wall. I'm not going to ask you for your secret route from Good. from UCLA campus to your home. Good. I won't tell you. One of the books you've, you've written is a biography on Josephine Shaw Lowell. Yes. Do you think. She is the godmother of the current Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. <laughs> I think she's one of them. She's one of the guiding spirits. She was a reformer uh, um, who's, who's, she started reforming charity. And really the organization that she founded in New York City uh, was one of the premier charitable organizations at that time in the Gilded Age when there was an increase of poverty because there was such an influx of population to America. Millions of immigrants 
came and they they came to New York, right? And they had they lived in uh, under horrible conditions for various reasons. And she thought that it would be a good idea to uh, to make charity more professional. So one of the things that she and her organization, the charity organization Society of New York City did, was to really start the idea of training social workers and sending them out. And, and I mean, there are all, there's all kinds of problems with various panaceas for wealth and poverty and how to address poverty, but she was a major player in that and she certainly was interested in all kinds of things, including the consumers leagues and, and all of that. So she was very, uh, very active. Yeah, you when you think of these these France fantastic women, whether they're in in Victorian era England towards the late nineteenth century or American, these women were amazing. For example, Josephine, as you know better than I do, she was widowed very very early in her life, and what they had to overcome to have impactful like the the beginning of the Red Cross, the beginning of these type of organizations and setting up things in New York City, of course, the center of the universe. I, I'm just flabbergasted whenever I read just even snippets of women of the late 19th century in, in the U.S. or or the U.K. Well, in, in the late 19th century, women became very active in politics. Now, the majority of women were interested in social, social welfare areas. How can we help poverty? How, how can we help clean up the streets? I hear that city streets are still in need of cleanup. <laughs> but uh, so that was that was a problem. And, and many women reformers, including Josephine Shaw Lowell, including Susan B. Anthony and Harriet Stanton and all the, the suffrage, the suffragists and the church women, you know, kind of came together in a city beautiful movement, uh, various kinds of reform. And it was it was actually a really interesting time for women at that time. Young women, girls could now play in sports. Girls had baseball leagues. They played in baseball starting at, in, in elementary schools and colleges. And then women played in semi-pro teams uh, as well in the late 19th century. Women played basketball. And so that so you had the development, I think, in the Gilded Age because of the growing economy, because of the cities, because of the immigrants who were, uh, many of whom were now in nice working class jobs that, have, that gave them the money to go to baseball stadiums and pay, you know, 50 cents to see a baseball game and eat a hot dog and, and cheer for their team. So there, there's all these interesting things happening that that made popular sports really powerful. I, can, I couldn't agree more. Of course, I have to agree. You're the expert. For, I'm not the expert, but I do know of the of the, of the people of the people in this on in this virtual room. You're the expert, <laughs> Professor okay. Law. Before we go to the last the last few questions, I'm gonna throw you a curveball. Our podcast logo has a drink in it, and I cannot go without asking you this, even though I've read other things about, I've read things that you wrote about this person. What was General Grant's favorite drink? 
Well, I think the smart ass would say whiskey. <laughs> and and I I have I mean there's a whole controversy as you know uh, was he an out of control drunk uh, at various times of his life? And I have I have uh, read much about Ulysses S. Grant, and I would say that he he did experience problems with alcohol in his life, but generally controlled it very well, and and certainly all the information that I've been able to gather as when he was president is that he 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 drank a little bit of wine he drank some whiskey but not a lot of it professor Wolf, i'm going to give you the points for this one question one round jeopardy for whiskey but also the correct answer would also have been anything i'm joking you know <laughs> i love the fact that there's this book and i i highly recommend that you read it is uh, it's called drinking in america I don't remember who the author is. I can send that to you later. The point is that it's like there, the, each chapter is a little snippet about a, 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 a supposedly, you know, American giant in the Revolutionary uh, War, et cetera. And also Ulysses S. Grant has a chapter in it of how people don't realize how much drinking these great men did. And it's not in a bad way. It's just saying that all this is stripped out. And my favorite story that I remember from it, from that book is Ethan Allen. Not the furniture, but the actual revolutionary from New England, Ethan Allen, where you, you might know this story is when he when they took over uh, him and someone else, a companion took over a British fort somewhere in New England, I think in Vermont or Maine. Anyways, somewhere in New England, the night before they're out laying out and of course they're drinking rum in the morning. His companion said, wow, did you he, he, he's like, oh, why did we have all these bites? He's And Ethan Allen says, oh, well, there's a lot of flies last night. Apparently a snake bit him. And died because of so much alcohol was in Ethan Allen's blood. Well, good to know. <laughs> you have to, if you go back to the early 19th century anywhere, but in let's just say America, drinking in America, well, drinking alcohol was much safer than drinking water, literally. I mean, you, you just, uh, uh, that's what you did. Men who worked, uh, usually they they didn't work in big uh, plants like they do like they did in the later 19th century, but they worked in small uh, areas, whether they were tailors or they were iron masters or something. They they drank during the day. They drank rum and spirits, and that was that actually alcohol replaced water to such an extent that it became a problem because what happened was men would leave their families, right? Uh, they, they, they wouldn't be good breadwinners. And so you had the rise of the temperance movement. And that led to a unfortunate experiment with prohibition. But you, you did have all these currents going and there was, there was, but certainly in the military, in the, in the military, you had heavy drinking. And I think that Grant probably didn't drink that much before, but when he got into the military, that was the culture. And he imbibed. And I, I love, again, history Everybody is. Did. Yeah. And the reason why we as a country don't, I think I think one of the reasons we don't drink rum as in, a, in this country is from the Revolutionary War of where, like, you know, that was that was a British import. We're leaving. And then right. obviously they, they it was replaced by bourbon and whiskey and what have you. And the same thing with tea, even though 
people don't know this, the United States is the biggest tea drinking country in the world, even though the Chinese or in India and in specifically in England, they say you don't drink tea because for them it's black tea or nothing. Like you don't drink chamomile tea, orange zest tea, all that. But all that is just a repudiation of the British influence from 260 odd years ago. I love yeah. history. Professor Walt, we want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> You're a Dodger fan, but if we were to take you away from UCLA, even though I know UCLA would not allow it, but if we were then to not, if we were to make you the new commissioner of Major League Baseball, what would Commissioner Waugh do? What's one or two things that you would do? Well, I think the the first thing that I would do, and, I, and by the way, we talk, uh, we spoke earlier of, of changes that were very positive in this past season, such as a shorter shorter time for the games. But the main change that I would suggest is this week-long hiatus that the teams who at the end of the season have the best record do not play after playing every day for so long. Now, I may be thinking of the LA Dodgers. I may not. I thought you were talking but, about the Atlanta Braves. No, I'm joking. But every single team that that had enjoyed that week off and said, it, indeed, the most successful teams lost to their, they, they didn't advance. And I, I'm so happy that Corey Seager got another ring but the World Series last year was the lowest rated World Series in history. And I think there's something, something awry, and that's what I would change. I would, I would say to the teams with the best records, you do not get any time off because it obviously affected you. And just it was well, just really hard to see Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, and all our wonderful hitters you know, go down without, without any hitting at all. So it's, it's personal with me. I had the World Series on three different televisions, so I did my part. I'm joking. And, but Professor Wall, academically, a one-year sample is a very small sample size. So what if the next nine seasons, let's say, that's not the case? I think we may be overcorrecting for a small sample size. Well, you could argue that, uh, and and let's go with what we know does not work for nine seasons, just to make sure it doesn't work. <laughs> but I, I just think I just think it could be a problem, and I I think it's odd that that all of the best teams failed to advance, and it's it's not good for the game. And at, and at the end of the day your commissioner law in this world. So what you say goes. Okay. All right. We love traveling, especially to go see baseball teams and games. And LA is, I genuinely think LA is the best food city in the country. Forget about obviously the center of the universe, New York city. I, I think LA has the best variety and just the best food in LA. I mean, in the country. Give us some, pla some places that you enjoy going to in L.A. when any one of us would go to L.A. to see the Dodgers or our favorite team play the Dodgers. Well, the thing is that, that you are talking to someone who has a limited repertoire. 
of I love Italian food. That is my favorite kind of food. And so there's, there's a lot of restaurants that I am fond of. Uh, we happen to have a lot of it, great Italian restaurants in West Los Angeles. Divino's is one of my favorites, Sortino's, and, and, and many others that I could name. But I have to tell you that I have, uh, I, I know friends, my sons, they love Korean food. You, you go to the ethnic neighborhoods in LA and you, you would be in heaven. If you love Korean food, you go to Koreatown. If you love Chinese food, and you can go out to, uh, to uh, outside of Los Angeles, uh, there's great Chinese food where the Chinese settled in um, in the valleys, in the San Gabriel Valley in particular. And it's just, it's amazing. Any kind of food you want, we have. Yeah, I'm def I'm a fan of uh, the, some of the places in Little Tokyo. I'll uh, yes. have some good little yes. spots there. Japanese food, it's big. Yeah, and, and that's that's possibly the same in many cities, and but it's certainly, uh, certainly true here. L LA, again, huge thumbs up when it comes to food. I love it. Professor Wall, I want to thank you for your time for joining us this week. Let us know where we can find some of your published work and so we can read it. Well, the, the best place that I can send you to is Amazon. If you type in my name, you'll see all my published work. And that that's pretty easy. I learned a lot about the Gilded Age talking with Professor Waugh, and I hope you did too. And when I was thinking about this podcast, recording it, editing it, in my hand, I've had a faithful adult drink. It's a Baron Hayakunin Bokushu classic. Let me try. Let me say that. Uh, I'm going to try to say that smoothly because I sounded like a robot there. Byron Hayakunin Bokushu classic from Bayern Brewing Company in Kitayama, Morioka, Iwate, Japan. Huh. Kitayama, Morioka, Iwate, Japan. Do you know one night when I was up on a, when I was in that YouTube black hole and the hours keep passing by and like, oh my God, I'm only going to have six hours of sleep, five hours of sleep. I actually was like, you know what? I'm going to learn Japanese tonight. And so for about half an hour, I was watching these YouTube videos of like Japanese, like basic, basic 101. And the next day and the day after that, and the week after that, and the month after that, I didn't watch any more learning Japanese, learning the Japanese language videos. So the moral of the story there is you can enjoy a different culture's beer, but you don't necessarily have to learn the language. So this Bayaden Hayukunin Bakushu classic, it's, it has a, it's smooth, but at the end it has like a multi taste, which is pretty good. I'm enjoying it. You know, it's pretty good as well. If you would like to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast, go ahead and give us a rating and review if you want. If you don't want, keep drinking and enjoy yourself. Thanks for listening to Last Call Baseball. Be great and get home safe.